Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 18, and chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 the story of the temple's construction. We think a lot about the messy intermingling of self-interest and service to God or to the good from Solomon's time and today. And we appreciate that while the text doesn't comment directly on it, it doesn't try to hide it either. We see the need to be suspicious about the way that religion can be manipulated to gain political power. And we sit with the almost amusing juxtaposition of an infinite God who dwells in a cloud who travels the desert, coming to inhabit this incredibly grand, seemingly permanent, and deeply human structure of cedar. It is a slightly awkward, but sort of sweet meeting place for humans and the divine. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Hey, Amy, I'm good. How are you? I am doing all right. I'm doing all right. Plugging away, enjoying the fall. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. yeah. I got to say October, probably my favorite month of all the months. And it's a really, really good month. It's a good month. It is, um, in in the Jewish world, it's, we're, it's around the month of Cheshvan, and it's like right after all these big Jewish holidays, like all the big ones, it's like yeah. this parade of Jewish holidays. And so we call Cheshvan sometimes Mar Cheshvan, bitter, like the bitterness <laughs> of Cheshvan because it has no holidays. But I will tell yeah. you, as someone working in a synagogue, that is not <laughs> bitter. That's yeah. Not bitter. It's beautiful. That's like the beautiful. That's thing. like the Christian period between like December 26th. And January 5th or something like that, where it's like everybody's sad because there's nothing, like all the big celebrations are over and all the professionals are like, All oh. the pastors are like, woo <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a Sunday in there yeah. we call Associate Pastor Sunday because that's the Sunday after Christmas because the anybody who has because the other head pastor, the head pastor takes it off. Yeah. So this is like yeah, your version cool. of that here in October. Yeah, I guess so. But I, yeah, I run the religious school and so that just started. And so it's, it's busy. It's just different, uh, busy, just different, busy, but it yeah. sure is pretty outside. <laughs> it, is, it is. It is beautiful outside. Yeah. Yeah. Halloween has also come in, which I'm pretty jazzed about. And my kid, my, my four-year-old, she's going to be a white tailed deer for Halloween. Like little antlers. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh my God, I love uh, she's not like all the other kids. She goes to a nature preschool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and so like they spend all like eighty percent of the day every day outside at the church camp, and uh, so her name like they all have like animal names, and her name is white-tailed deer. So that's that's going to be her. Okay, now that's adorable. Yeah, that is very adorable. Very sweet. Well, how do you transition from there to the building of the temple? I don't have a, I don't really have a good segue. Yeah. Um, the best one I could come up with is maybe in his in his celebration of the newly built temple. Solomon also sacrificed a white-tailed deer. I don't know. He didn't list it in the text, but we'll oh, get no. to a list. Of it. <laughs> that took a turn I did not anticipate. We are reading First Kings chapter five. Verses well, the lectionary reading is chapter five, verses one through five, and chapter eight, verses one through 13. We are adding a little bit in there because you and I both just felt the end of chapter five really, really is rich and important and complicating, yeah, and needed. So, tell me what are the verses we're reading from the end of the chapter? 
Yeah, we just discovered, Amy and I, that the versification <laughs> right here is completely different completely in the <laughs> Jewish different. and Christian tradition. Yes, yes. So uh, we're reading in, in the Christian translation, the NRSV, anyway, 5, 1 through 6, and then 13 through 18. Okay, so when last we spoke... We had just met the young lad, David. Yeah. Right? And and it was sort of clear to us as readers that he was going to be the next king. But then all that mess that happened, <laughs> you know, with his actual ascent to yeah. the throne and his entire reign, we did not read. Right. So obviously you can't summarize for us all of what has happened in that time. But is there anything that you would want to pull out as things we really need to know to understand what's happening here? Yeah, so interesting because we've skipped a book and a half from the middle of 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Samuel and now we're in 1 Kings. And we're just in the like the next generation. We're just at David's yeah. son Solomon, which in like biblical chronology, like normally if you skip a book and a half, you're skipped like 500 years or something. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of words spilled about David. Yeah, so David is such a an important figure. You know, I was thinking about what what do you need to know to get to this text, and in my mind, the key thing is the promise to David in Second Samuel chapter seven, which we talked about on the podcast last year. So David becomes the king, as you know. Uh, after Saul dies, David becomes the king. He defeats the Philistines. He says to God, hey, I live in this nice house. I'm going to build you a house, meaning a temple. God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty. And so God says, here's your eternal dynasty, David. There's always going to be a king, a king in the Davidic line on the throne in Jerusalem. And your son can build me a temple. You can't do it, but I will, or but your son will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we talked about that on the podcast last year. There's a lot, of, there's a lot in that text on 2 Samuel 7 that I think is interesting and, and worth talking about. But that's a good background, important background for, for what's happening here. Because in this text, Solomon's actually fulfilling that prophecy or that promise. Yes, yeah. Yep. The, rest of, the rest of 2 Samuel 7 is the tragic story of David's family and the way it falls apart in all these really sad and terrifying ways. You know, it's it's worth a read, but I don't know that it necessarily is mm-hmm. part of this. Solomon, who is going to be the main character in this text, is David's successor. He was actually David's fourth son, and so part of what happens in the sec in the second half of Second Samuel is you figure out what happened to the other three. Mm-hmm. Absalom kills Amnon. Absalom then has a coup against David, gets caught in a tree, and gets killed by Joab. And then is it Adonijah? thinks he's the new king, and so he declares himself king, but David has decided Solomon is king, and so Solomon dispatches of him. So it's a pretty brutal succession, but now Solomon yeah. is the legitimate king, at least in, in the eyes of our author, and is establishing his, his reign in Jerusalem. That was a great summary. What, uh, anything else you think we ought, to, we ought to know? I mean, the only other thing I would add, I think in terms of introduction of Solomon, because we don't... I don't think we see too much of this, but the texts prior to this section make a very big deal of a couple of things. One is he is loaded. (laughs) Yeah. Like he has so, I mean, he has immense riches like you could not even imagine. Yeah. He has a lot of power. His like his reign, his, his kingdom, I guess, is he has control over it says a couple of different kingdoms. I don't know exactly what the how the politics of that work, but he was enormously powerful and yeah. it was a peaceful time. Yeah. And he's known to be very very wise. He's our yes. our wise guy, but like actually wise, not wise guy. And those two things which are both super important are related in the sense that in that story back in 1 Kings 3, God shows up to Solomon and says, what can I do for you? And Solomon, instead of asking for riches and a long life, says, you can make me a wise king. And God mm-hmm. says, I will make you a wise king. And because you didn't ask for riches and long life, I will make you rich and give you a long life. 
Maybe Solomon predicted that. He was so wise that he <laughs> yeah. knew. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's one of the things we talk about in my, uh, in my classes is Solomon had to be wise enough to know to ask for wisdom, right? So there, mm-hmm. like wisdom sort of builds on itself in some kind of interesting yeah, ways. Yeah, wisdom begets wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We should probably so, say uh, just, you know, the biblical telling of Solomon's reign and the historical record for Solomon's reign are not particularly well squared up to one another. Mm. Biblical text seems to sort of exaggerate Solomon's glory a bit. Mm-hmm. So we probably don't need to talk about that really in the podcast, but just when we say Solomon was a great, powerful king who had a ginormous, wealthy empire, this is the biblical recollection of Solomon. Yeah. Uh, someone who is working without the biblical text, just working from archaeology and whatnot, might take exception to that characterization. Yep. Yep. I think that's a really important, really important point and something we need to always remind ourselves of reading this text, that it is in relationship to history, but it's not a history book. Right. Yeah. Okay. We ready? I'm ready. Okay. So we are in... First Kings chapter five, verse one. And I'm reading from the JPS, which says this is verse 15. (laughs) (laughs) King Hiram of Tyre sent his officials to Solomon when he heard that he had been anointed king in place of his father, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. Solomon sent this message to Hiram. You know that my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of his enemies that encompassed him until the Lord had placed them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me respite all around. There is no adversary and no mischance. And so I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord promised my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on the throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Please then give orders for cedars to be cut for me in the Lebanon. My servants will work with yours, and I will pay you any wages you may ask for your servants. For as you know, there is none among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. The first question that comes to my mind reading this is, does this square with what we had heard before about why David couldn't build the temple? Yeah, that's... That's one of the things that I was paying attention to, too, which is so interesting. Because, I mean, on the one hand, yes, the part where Solomon says, God said, your son will build a house in my name. Yes. That part absolutely squares with 2 Samuel 7. But the part before that, which is the part I think you're asking about, David couldn't do it because he had so many enemies. I don't think that's really what was going on back in 2 Samuel, that David was actually building, wanting to build a temple exactly because he had rest from his enemies and he had time and energy to put toward it. So, yeah, so I, I don't think that that's the way that story is told in Second Samuel. What Do you make anything out of that? Yeah, I mean, I was just looking back at that, that passage from Second Kings, and it doesn't seem to say anything about why, why David can't build the temple. It just says, no, I didn't ask for a temple. Don't do that. Okay. David David says, like, basically, I've got this really nice house, <laughs> a house of cedar, and the ark of the Lord is in a tent. Like, this isn't right. Yeah, whatever the case, we've got Solomon saying, I mean, I don't, yeah, I mean, I think it's legitimate to say that's, that David's reign was occupied, by and large, with defeating his enemies. Like, I think that's fair to the biblical text. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And so whether this is, was David's reasoning or not, this, it seems to be Solomon's kind of interpretation was, my dad was a busy guy. <laughs> he does not talk yeah. about the part where God said, no, you can't. Like he, he talks about the positive part, right? Your son will build it. He doesn't talk about the part where God says, you're not allowed to build it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know how I feel about Solomon. I need like... Yeah. Like we should offer Solomon therapy, I think. <laughs> yeah. Booming business. But, you know, on the one hand, he's kind of like disgustingly rich in some ways. And, yeah. and he has so much political power that. Yeah. It's that I read it as the kind of peace that's like, you know, almost sort of like in quotes, like, yeah, it's peaceful because there's one 
autocrat in charge of everything. Yeah. You know, that's a, it's a, it's a suppression kind of peacefulness. And, you know, he does recognize here that like, I've got it pretty good. Yeah. And I should, I should, I should use this, you know, time and power and wealth that I have in some way to, to honor God. And, and so like, that's, that's not nothing. Yeah, I really appreciate your drawing out that the ambiguous character of Solomon. I, th- I think that's, I think your characterization is exactly right. And, you know, as I was thinking about it, I was like, I, I think that's actually a kind of a fair characterization of a lot of us, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, we're trying to do our best, uh, given the sort of limitations, sometimes, oftentimes of our understanding, self understanding, our understanding of our position in the world. And sometimes it really is like, a good thing that we're doing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. It's a self-interested thing. Sometimes we think we're doing something good, but it turns out to be self-interested. Like Right, or they're all mixed in together. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the complexity of the text. Yeah, absolutely. Like how often do we want to do really good things and also we want to build a legacy while we do it? Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, it's both. Yeah. It's both. And it's definitely both here for Solomon. Yeah. I will tell you that as a student of Walter Brueggemann, I do not like Solomon. <laughs> so you should just know that coming in. Uh, for Brueggemann, yeah. Solomon is the basically the guy who messed everything up. And so mm. David did okay. Solomon was not a good, not a good thing, uh, which is not exactly the way the biblical text thinks about Solomon. And so you might yeah. have to check me a little bit when I when I go off on my anti-Solomon rants. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I but I hear that and it's just so funny cuz it's like and the second king in the lineage messes <laughs> yeah. it all up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Great. And I mean really David was pretty terrible the second half of his story too. So it's like it didn't last very long for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about the fact that this is sort of like immediately an international endeavor in some way. Yeah. You know, I mean like, okay, fine. So the trees in Lebanon are the best trees and those are the ones we want. But I don't know, that feels significant to me that this is like a temple for the God of Israel, for like, for their people. But it's, but it's built from neighboring allies. I don't know. Yeah, no, that, the relationship of Solomon and Hiram is so interesting. We've seen, we've seen Hiram once before when David got ready to build his palace, I guess, back in 1 yeah. Samuel. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, was, was involved in that process too and gave lumber to David. And so there's been this kind mm-hmm. of back and forth. But there's this interesting note in verse 12, which we, we're not reading for today, but the text says, the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. So there is very much in the background of this temple building, there is international politics, as you're saying, and the yeah. kind of invitation that Solomon makes for Hiram to supply the materials for the temple in exchange for a, like a lot of money right. has a positive political effect. And so like that's messy yeah. in, the, in the same way we were talking about the text is messy in other ways that that's messy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's right. And you know, I hadn't actually thought about it in that, in, with that kind of like nuance and complexity about it. I was just like, oh, it's, it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice that, you know, that this is sort of, this effort is not only coming from inside of Israel, but is sort of overtly supported by at least this one surrounding people. Yeah. But but yeah, you're right. It also is is the occasion for for a treaty that will no doubt be beneficial to Solomon yeah. and Solomon and you know his his own power. Yeah, I think that's right. In the world, I mean, and I do think yeah. it's nice. Like, it's great to have allies, and I and I do think Hiram and Solomon kind of have a good thing going. So I think all of that is very positive, and also there are power relations and political alliances that are that are being created here. Yeah. And even the way Solomon approaches Hiram by way of saying, y'all have the best trees and also the best tree cutters, and we don't even know how to cut down a tree, <laughs> so maybe you can teach us. Like, it's very deferential and sort of flattering in this interesting yeah. kind of way. Yeah. By the way, Hiram, king of Tyre, there's a place in the town where my spouse used to live that's uh, it's the Tyre king. 
And so I like to go in there and be like, hey, is Hiram here? <laughs> and they're like, what? I'm like, you know, the king of tires. You did not actually they, do that. They do not think that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people do not That's get shocking. biblical scholar humor. Like people in there. Yeah. Just pretty much anybody. I'm going to try that joke out. Yeah, the tire king. What else do you want to say about this first section here? I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me in this section is that what Solomon says to Hiram is, look, I'll send you some people and they can join your people and they can mm -hmm. cut together and then we'll pay fair wage for those folks. What ends up happening in the next section, which we're not reading, is Hiram says, no, no, that's okay. We don't need your people. We'll just do all the work ourselves and we'll ship it down to you and you pick it up at the harbor and then it's yours, right? So I don't need your guys. I don't want to train your guys. My people will do it. And then instead of taking, you know, like fair wages for some laborers, he has Solomon pay in verse 11 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, and he did it every year. So I was reading- Why did he do it every year? Like, yeah, like this, instead of like, we're going to pay a fair wage for the labor, it's from yeah. now in perpetuity, we're going to pay you. I was reading a biblical scholar who I, mm, I forget who I was reading right now, which is terrible, but they had done the, the work based on another text earlier in, in this chapter. And 20,000 cores of wheat is enough to feed all of Solomon's, like, like, it's not exactly his family, but like his palace cohort. It's mm -hmm. enough to feed them for seven months. And so what he's paying Hiram year after year is the like household food budget of his own house for more than half a year. So Hiram gets a sweet deal out of this. And I don't even know like so what Solomon is doing here, but. He, in order to make peace, I guess, he pays what seems like an exorbitant price to, to Hiram. That's so interesting. And in the section, you know, before this text, it talks about how all these peoples from surrounding nations brought offerings to Solomon. And then we see how, so like, just seeing how the whole economy sort of. Yeah works and how the economy is of course tied up in with the building of this magnificent temple like that is yeah that is something that happens in the economy it's not sort of up in the cloud somewhere but yeah that that makes it more complicated one of the things that i'm kind of interested here like i mean we've been very political or at least i have <laughs> us maybe us both but in in our thinking about why is solomon building the temple and i'm just curious like maybe that's just a sort of the way that we are. But I feel like this text is, Solomon in this part of this text anyway, is a little withholding about any particular kind of religious motivations. Like he says, God gave me rest on every mm. side, therefore I'm going to do this thing. But do you see like Solomon's sort of devotion, his religious impulse to build this temple here? That's such a great question. It is definitely not front and center. Yeah. Like that's not, which is not necessarily to say that he doesn't have a religious motivation. Mm -hmm. Maybe he does, but he doesn't think that conversation is going to be the thing that will get it done. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe, maybe he doesn't. I, that question had never occurred to me, Bobby. But yeah, where you had some sense with David that David thought, wow, God has been really good to me and I get to live in this house. I should build something for God. Here you get Solomon sort of saying, well, my dad wanted to do it, but he couldn't because he was really busy. And yeah. so now I've got some time, so I'll do it for him. I, I don't know. It's just his motivations here are, are really interesting to me. Or yeah. His l lack of motivations or, or something. I don't mean to poop all over Solomon's <laughs> religious motivations. No, I mean, it's. It is, it, the text tells us like he's super, super rich. He's super powerful. He's super wise. He has yeah. everything a person could want. And then, and then he says, I'm going to build a temple. But it's, yeah, there's, we don't have a lot of into sort of what's going on in his soul. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we do get to see more of what he does that is 
becomes increasingly problematic. Yeah, for real. So we are picking up then in chapter 5, verse 13 in the NRSV, which is verse 27 in the JPS. King Solomon imposed forced labor on all Israel. The levy came to 30,000 men. He sent them to the Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month. They would spend one month in the Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon also had 70,000 porters and 80,000 quarriers in the hills, apart from Solomon's 3,300 officials who were in charge of the work and supervised the gangs doing the work. The king ordered huge blocks of choice stone to be quarried so that the foundations of the house might be laid with hewn stones. Solomon's masons, Hiram's masons, and the men of Gabal shaped them. Thus, the timber and the stones for the building of the house were made ready. Yeah. Forced labor. Yeah. Do you think that's like being... Okay, this might be a really dumb question. Is that like an equivalent in modern times to like being drafted? I think that's probably right. I was going to use the word conscripted labor, which is basically the same word. So I don't think it's that they're being forced to work for no wages. Yeah. It's just they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice about it. And I mean, maybe the wages are not fair. I, I don't really know. Yeah. But I think they have been taken from whatever it is that they would otherwise be doing for their livelihood, you know, working the family farm or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they have been put to this task. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sent away for a month at a time. Yeah. So they have one month away and then two months at home and just sort of keep going. Yeah. I mean, and especially when you read the text the way we've been reading, you know, where just a couple of weeks ago we were in the, in slavery in Egypt. Like, I mean, it's been mm. some number of years in the biblical chronology, but in terms of the narrative that we've been reading. So this, in this reading of it, this strikes me particularly much. Like, it seems like we just got out of a forced labor situation. And now here we are in another one. And this time it's the Israelite king who is doing it to the people like Solomon is kind of playing the role of Pharaoh in in that kind of sense. I mean, okay, I hear what you're saying and I want to push on it a little bit. Yeah, please do. Because I, in the, okay, for two reasons. One of them is that in Egypt, it was pretty clear that the people were being abused. Yeah. It wasn't just, they didn't get to choose the work that they were doing doing. Yeah. And I don't know if that's implied. I don't know what exactly is implied here. I mean, it certainly is is manual labor and hard work, but I don't know I don't know if it's the equivalent of of what was happening with Pharaoh. The other thing is that when when the Israelites are freed from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, this might just sort of seem like a play on words and maybe in some ways it is, but it, it it seems clear to me in the text that they are being freed from serving Pharaoh so that they can serve God. They're not yeah. being freed so they can be free. Yeah. But I do think that raises the question of like, is this really serving God? I don't know. God did say your son can build me a temple, but is this what God had? God is, God is quiet in this yeah. part. And the people are quiet. Like we don't know if, you know, what What does Joe Israel think of this plan? I don't know that Solomon cares. Solomon has a lot of power. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a fair, I, I appreciate your pushing back on both of those points. And yeah, I, I don't mean to say exactly that Solomon is Pharaoh. I mean, that's exactly what I yeah. said. <laughs> said so <laughs> so I, that's a fair critique. But I do think that there is something that's happening here in which Pharaoh had forced the people to labor on behalf of the state apparatus. And here Mm -hmm. Solomon is forcing the people to labor on behalf of the state apparatus. Now it is a religious apparatus. You're right about that. And so there is some, there is some openness, I think, about whether this is, you know, it's not a purely economic kind of conscription. Maybe it's okay to force people to labor on behalf of a religious building. But it is a far cry in my mind from the sort of Deuteronomistic ideal of people who are, you know, living on the land and raising their families and raising their crops and looking out for each other 
Yeah. This is not, this is not that. Totally, totally agree. Yes. Yes. This whole setup makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think what I'm wrestling with or wondering is how uncomfortable would it make, uh, maybe not make the biblical author, but, but someone who sort of is in the mindset of, you know, uh, of, of the, of the biblical text, like all the way as a, as a modern person, all of this makes me terribly yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's a good question. And like the, yeah, I don't know why the author tells us this part. Well, I mean, it certainly comes up, you know, later with Solomon's Solomon's sons that the people yeah. are like, you know, pushing, pushing back on the king saying like, we can't, we're not, you can't be like Solomon. Yeah. Because he, he was not the king we wanted. He worked us too hard. And of course his sons go in the, his son goes in the wrong direction. But yeah, the, the people, I don't know, Solomon gets away with it. The people, the people do what he insists upon. So he has the power to make this happen. But yeah, it's clear later that they don't want to live like this. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think that text i think the i in my mind the author of the text is kind of raising that that issue that's going to get played out in the story of rehoboam later as as you're saying mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so i i think there is an implied critique of solomon here but it's not the point of the story which maybe is partly what you're saying like the the point of the story seems to be the wonder and the glory of the temple and also hey this wonderful glorious thing was built on the backs of conscripted labor. And so there is, like we've been talking about ambiguity oh, a lot today. So much resonance with our modern times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Did you want to say anything about that? Well, I mean, I don't want to go too far off the rails at this point, but yeah. just like our, my own growing awareness of how much of the things in our country that I sometimes really love and appreciate and benefit from. And sometimes I don't, but sometimes they, they seem to be like genuinely beautiful contributions to society. Realizing that they were built on the backs of slaves or they were built by, you know, oppressing, pushing poor people out of certain neighborhoods or, you know, that there's a lot that's been swept under the rug that, that really sort of changes the way you think about these grand, beautiful, yeah, you know, otherworldly seeming things. They are very much of this world. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And, and one of the things that I really love about the book of Kings is that it doesn't sweep the things under the rug. It's, yeah. I don't, it's not really dealing with them either exactly, but it's just kind of telling you how it is. And so that yeah. there's this beautiful temple and this is what, we had to do to get there and like is that a good thing or a bad thing like y- yes like right. it is something good yeah. that came out of something horrible and that all of that complexity is just right there which i think invites us like you're doing to think about that complexity in our own time yeah yes i like that all right you ready to move on to chapter eight let's do it okay so we are beginning at the beginning of chapter eight then verse one Then Solomon convoked the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the ancestral chieftains of the Israelites, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, that is, Zion. All the men of Israel gathered before King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim. Ethanim, we don't call it that anymore. That is, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had come, the priests lifted the Ark and carried up the Ark of the Lord. Then the priests and the Levites brought the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. Meanwhile, King Solomon and the whole community of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen and white-tailed deer (laughs) in such abundance that they could not be numbered or counted. No, there's no real white-tailed deer. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, so, So we're ready to celebrate here. Yeah. So you said, uh, when you read Ethanim, you said, we don't call it that anymore. Can you say a word about what you do call it and why you think the biblical yeah, text is Ethanim? Yeah, we call it Tishrei, which is like s- September, early October. That's the month that has like all the big Jewish holidays in it. Yeah. And 
so after the Babylonian exile, it, they just started calling it Tishrei instead of Ethanim. Okay, so this is just a it. sort of pre-exilic way of referring. Yeah, to it's the just month. a pre-exilic name of the name of the month. Yeah. So in the month of Tishrei, then you have the high holidays, including Sukkot, the festival full of mm-hmm. booths. Do you connect this text? So they're doing this at the time of that festival where everybody's like Sukkot is people living in makeshift structures to remember their wandering in the wilderness. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Do you can, do you yeah. think these, those two things are connected at the festival in the month? We certainly that- don't talk about, so in modern times, that is, we, we talk about two things. We talk about remembering the time that we were wandering in the desert in tents and we talk about harvest and how tents were set up. Yeah. You know, in fields during harvest times. But my my Jewish study Bible says the dedication being described here, 11 months after the completion of the temple, was scheduled for the Feast of Booths, which is Sukkot. Yeah. But it doesn't say why. I had never made that connection before. But to me, that's fascinating if you think about like, yeah. So it's not that they called a festival to dedicate the temple. It's that they decided to dedicate the temple during the festival of booths mm-hmm. when they could have done it 11 months earlier, right? Cause they finished the temple 11 months ago. So they waited for the festival of booths. That is really interesting. Cause my first thought was, well, they waited for a festival. So everyone would be at Jerusalem because there are three times a year that yeah. all the Israelites are supposed to go to Jerusalem. And, and this was one of the times, but there was in 11 months, they had other options. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't need to wait for this. So there, that is really interesting, the juxtaposition of this idea that we're supposed to be dwelling in these vulnerable temporary structures yeah. where we can see the stars and feel the wind and know that it can fall down, <laughs> being juxtaposed with this magnificent house of cedar being built for God. That's, I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, you know, I was thinking back to 2 Samuel 7, where God basically says, like, why are you building me a house of cedar? I don't live in houses of cedar. I live in tents in the wilderness. And right. then now while we're, we're remembering tents in the wilderness, they're moving God into a house of cedar. It is such a fascinating juxtaposition yeah. here. Yes. Yep. Yeah. But much more, I think, the way that, you know, way back when David was talking about building a temple. And realized, I live in this magnificent palace, and God is hauling around in a tent. This is this is the inverse of that, but much more oh, in the yeah. way that it you know should be like acknowledging the. Of course, you know Solomon's mm. probably not in a <laughs> not in a tent. He's he's probably in his palace, but you know it it in terms of if if a if a structure can bring glory in some way, then then this is how it quote unquote should be. Yeah. That detail is fascinating to me. I don't quite 100% know know how to process it right now. But anyway, that's the setting. I had missed the setting of this until this reading of it today. Okay. So they bring the ark and the whole tent of meeting. So yeah. they are, they're moving, as far as I understand it, they're moving this whole Mishkan and everything in it. Yeah. That was all in Jerusalem. Yeah. And this is near Jerusalem. This is like on a, on a hill north of Jerusalem is, is my understanding. So they're taking all this stuff out of like the center of the city and moving it up to this hill altogether. Hmm. Somehow I find it striking that they, I mean, at least what I understand, they brought, they brought the tent. Like they didn't just bring the stuff. Yeah. Like the, the tent itself is has moved along with it. I don't, I don't know quite what to make of that, but it's, I don't know, it's an interesting image to me. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, I feel like one of the things that we're struggling with a little bit, and I think you and I process it a little differently, is the relative value of like mobility and impermanence, which in my mind yeah. is represented by the tent, and yeah. then stability and like permanence which in my mind is represented by the temple and in a certain understanding is meant to convey the power of the people who run the temple or the king who inaugurates the temple. 
So it's interesting when you take the tent and put it inside the temple. So now you've got the mobile thing inside the permanent thing. There's some sort of interesting mixture of those two kinds of ways of thinking about it. But it's different than like folding up the tent and sticking it in the closet <laughs> and then moving all the stuff into the temple. Like they're trying to preserve the memory of the mobility of the wilderness or something mm. like that. That's such an interesting way of putting it because it's like preserve the memory. I don't know. I've been struggling a lot with lately with the whole idea of, of when we preserve memory and mm-hmm. and what we what happens to it through the things that we do to try to preserve it, you know, that we take sometimes, yeah. sometimes these, as you're saying, I think, or, or hinting at these movable, flexible, sort of living traditions or ideas or whatever people. And, and by trying to give them stability, we freeze them. Like we, yeah. we take away, we take away a critical part of them, but we feel, but then that becomes the thing, you yeah. know? Yeah, we we mistake that sort of solidified memory of it for for the actual thing itself when there when there was more movement. Yeah, as I was reading this part and it'll it'll you know become even more clear later on, but there's this like sense of permanence about it. Like finally we're done. This yeah. we've arrived and this is how it's going to be yeah. forever. And I was like, Bobby's not going to like that one bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know what that is about. I don't know what that is in me. But yeah, there's definitely, like for as institutional a guy as I am, right? Like I'm a tenured professor at a liberal arts college and I'm a an ordained pastor in a tradition that comes out of the Reformation. You know, like I'm a pretty establishment guy and yet I'm really nervous about established things. Like I, I, I value movements yeah. and like things, the creativity of the, you know, things don't become too solidified. And you can definitely tell that in this conversation and like conversations that we have that I want to preserve the sort of freedom of the wilderness where this text is celebrating the solidity of the the monarchy. And both of those things are beautiful in their own way and problematic in their own way. So, yeah. I mean, I know we need to go on to the next section, but yes to what you're saying about the monarchy. And I understand, I think what you're getting at. But I also think it's it is significant, at least to me, that at least on the face of it, ostensibly, that is not what they're celebrating. They're not celebrating the monarchy. No, they're, they're so not. celebrating God. Yeah. But I understand what you're saying that like it, this winds up being a really large feather in Solomon's cap. You know, that's exactly. Do you think right. it's even worth disti- Is it worth even distinguishing those things, though? It is. Or do you think they're so mixed up together? No, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, my concern is that when we do things and assume the motivations are purely religious, we can become sort of muted to the Mm -hmm. political realia that religion reinforces. And so you've always got to, in my mind, to be a little suspicious about the way that religion gets invoked in the public sphere because it does justify things. And it, mm-hmm. it does create an authorization for the way things are ruled. And if you pretend like it's not, then you're going to miss all kinds of stuff. But on the other hand, if you're only ever suspicious of things religious because of how they can be manipulated for power, then you miss the beauty of the sacred. Right. And right. part of our conversation, I feel like, is you and I are, we're not exactly on opposite sides of that, but we have different emphases, which I, I think is an important kind of tension to 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 live with. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there are elements of both of those in here and it's hard to figure out how they balance. Can you just talk a little bit about the stuff that's in there besides the tent? There's, there's the ark, the holy vessels. The ark is said to contain the tablets. Like, I don't even know, but you think a lot about the temple and temple. Yeah. So like the holy vessels would be most notably that altars. There's a there's a golden altar of incense and there's a bronze altar for sacrifice, um, sacrificing animals. And these altars are really sort of the, in some ways I think of them as like the, the, the filters in some way, the air filter between the relationship between God and the Israelites. And so in the course of sacrifice, the altars are cleansed or yeah, cleansed, I guess, using some of the blood from the animal that's been sacrificed. And it, 
it's understood as far as we can tell as a way to like literally clear the air and sort of like keep, keep lines of communication open, keep like some state within the temple of tabernacle structure where God and humanity can continue to mm-hmm. interact safe, safely ish with each other. And so, yes, these are, they're, they're very special pieces of furniture that have to be wrapped and carried in very precise ways, lest their holiness endanger some poor fool who just tries to pick it up. Like there, there are a lot of precautions to take in working with these, these pieces of furniture. Yeah. All right. Should we read the last part here? Let's do. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse six. The priests brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place underneath the wings of the cherubim in the shrine of the house in the Holy of Holies. For the cherubim had their wings spread out over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim shielded the Ark and its poles from above. The poles projected so that the ends of the poles were visible in the sanctuary in front of the shrine, but they could not be seen outside. And there they remain to this day. There was nothing inside the Ark, but the two tablets of stone which Moses placed there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after their departure from the land of Egypt. When the priests came out of the sanctuary, for the cloud had filled the house of the Lord, and the priests were not able to remain and perform the service because of the cloud, for the presence of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon declared, The Lord has chosen to abide in a thick cloud. I have now built for you a stately house, a place where you may dwell forever. This section is a little weird. I find it a little weird. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping that you were going to be like all, what is, what is the significance of this? <laughs> Let me stuff? explain. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm trying to picture exactly what they're talking about with the poles sticking out of the holy That's of my favorite so part. I want to know more what you from think about the sanctuary. that. The poles are so long that they stick out. Like they don't quite fit in the holy of holies. So it the priests like can see the them when they're in the holy bigger. place. The, say that again. It seems like they should have made the Holy of Holies bigger. Like that's a design <laughs> mistake. Yeah, no, like, that for all can't the money just be an they oops, spent on right? Like we didn't measure correctly. Like there had to be a reason. Maybe that's how. So okay. So I will say the Holy of Holies. The priest, the high priest, only goes in there on one day a year, Yom Kippur. Yeah. It's really there's so much holiness in there that it is dangerous for everybody. Yeah. And the poles are permanently attached to the furnishings. And they're long because, again, you can't get too close to the furnishings because they, they have this energy about them. Yeah. Like you could get zapped. So maybe it's like a this is how the priest knows from his usual station, like in the, the holy area, which like regular old Israelites wouldn't be in there, but the priests could be in there. Yeah. Could, could like sort of eyeball, okay, the ark's. The ark's still there. Like maybe it's just yeah. like a, it's like his ring, like the doorbell ring, not like a finger ring. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like a little camera. I like that. No, I think that makes good sense. So it's like a quick check to make sure the ark has not disappeared. It seems like an, like a not very elegant solution though for such a grand yeah. structure. I don't know. No, it strikes me initially as just kind of funny that the poles are sticking out. But Agreed. Yeah. Like in my mind, like, I think you're like, onto something. And, you know, the Holy of Holies is sort of performing the function that the Ark itself has kind of performed, which is to be the place where God is most readily present or something. And so in that sense, yeah. like it kind of is fitting that there are poles sticking out from it. And it could, in addition to being like a check on, like, is it still there? It could be like a reminder, like, oh... You don't want to, you don't want to go in there or like, don't forget that we have to carry this thing, like give it proper respect of distance. Like these poles remind you of the way that we move this thing around. Yeah. No, that makes sense because I mean, there's, there's a a curtain that hangs between the Holy of Holies and the space where the priests usually are. So you can't just look in there. And so, yeah, maybe it is a, a visual reminder of like, know before whom you stand, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting thought. I just I just think it it I just picture like like a kid whose pants are too short because he's growing <laughs> yeah. too fast. Like like something is kind of you know I don't know 
in disarray. Yeah, no, it's, it does seem a little unseen. For as careful as the whole description of the temple and the tabernacle yeah, have been, yes. the pole stuck out from under the curtain is kind of a funny detail. Yes, and there's like hewn stone makes the foundation of the temple. Like they, it's, you know. Yeah. This was not, this is not shoddy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you make anything of the tablets of the com- of the commandments being the thing that's in the ark? Do I know anything about it? Do you make anything of it? Like, is that significant? I mean, I'm, it's obviously it's significant, <laughs> but like, do you have a thoughts about the way in which that's significant? I, as I was reading it aloud, I almost started giggling during that part because it just, I don't know. Like, I think of I, I know there are there are biblical traditions where the tablets of the ark, the tablets are in the ark. Mm-hmm. But I, as I think there are also biblical traditions where it doesn't say anything about anything being in the ark. And so here saying it's just the tablets. I was like, I picture them carrying around like those trunks that you bring to summer camp, you know, yeah. <laughs> being like, but you <laughs> yeah. can only put the tablets in there. Like, don't put your shoes in there. Yeah. But I can't think of anything any particularly intelligent to say about the significance of it being the commandments other than what else would they have put in there they don't they don't have a lot of like souvenirs from their travels with yeah god yeah you know in the typical temple of the in the ancient near east there would have been a statue of the god in there right but right in the 10 commandments there's a prohibition against making images of god and so mm-hmm. there can't be that and so like in my mind it's interesting that the Ten Commandments kind of in the Ark kind of serve the function of an image of God. I don't know. Maybe I'm pushing that a little too far. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the Torah itself kind of becomes the embodiment of God on earth or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, and that is, I mean, there's a strong biblical tradition of that. I mean, I yeah. feel like that's the whole book of Deuteronomy, the role of the Torah as the meeting place between God and Israel and sort of the the yeah. the best access that we have to God coming through, you know, in Deuteronomy, it's Torah, but like coming through text in some way, coming through words. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I feel really struck by this image of when the cloud fills the house of the mm. Lord, the priests have to leave. Ah. Uh-huh. What is that like conjure? For you. Can you read those verses in your translation? Yeah. When the priests came out of the sanctuary, for the cloud had filled the house of the Lord, and the priests were not able to remain and perform the service because of the cloud, for the presence of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon declared, They were not able to remain and minister. The NRSV's translation, I think, is a little unfortunate. It says they could not stand to minister. Which I think means they couldn't mm-hmm. like get up to do it, but it sounds like I like I can't stand that. Right, they couldn't bear it. Yeah, that's a fascinating detail. Like, yeah, that the when God becomes so present in a place that the priests can no longer remain there is fascinating. I mean, the first place that my head goes is that a priest, in a sense, is a mediation point between God and the mm-hmm. people, or God and mm-hmm. the world, and so. If God is so fully present there, it sort of makes the priest unnecessary. And so they don't, holiness is so present that they don't, they can't, even they can't be that close to that present. I'm not sure that as I say that out loud, I'm not sure that makes sense of the text though. Do you you have thoughts about it? I mean, the first thing it made me think of actually was we we talked way back when we were reading uh, the creation story this year about the the Jewish legend that God had to sort of constrict God's self in order to make space for other things. Yeah. And I feel like this is like, this is sort of an example of like when, when God's presence becomes so present, even though it's a cloud, like it's not something that you can touch. It's not like, yeah, you know, like it seems like it should be something you could coexist with, but, but it's so, but it's not like when God's presence is there, it is taking up, the space. And yeah. so you can't also take up the space. Thinking about the conversation that we're having about like 
God and religious structures and institutions and who controls God. Like to me, this is an interesting image in that conversation because here we've built a temple to contain God and we've built priests to mediate God. And then God actually shows up and the people can't, the priests can't stay there. I like that image in that sense of like God is still God, right? God is a is a smoke that cannot be contained and in whose presence you cannot remain. So you can build all the temples and structures and administrative arrangements you want and and maybe alter the good. Like not to critique that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there are limits. Like God is God is God. God is a God who dwells in smoke and can't be contained or constrained unless God kind of wants to be maybe that that fits so in interestingly i don't know well into this this declaration solomon makes afterwards that i <laughs> yeah. think is so bizarre yeah yeah the lord has chosen to abide in a thick cloud <laughs> mm-hmm. wow that's deep solomon <laughs> i i just can't i i have a really difficult time sort of parsing the Lord has chosen to abide in a thick cloud. I have now built for you a stately house, yeah. a place where you may dwell forever. But I think it sort of raises for me that question that you were just like pointing out like, okay, so God's a cloud, but also I've made this really nice house for you so the cloud can go in the house. Like, like almost sort of like underscoring the sort of absurdity of this yeah. situation, but not quite. I mean, Solomon still seems pleased with his work, and God doesn't express any displeasure yeah. about this. So No, I agree that God is not displeased about this. God seems to affirm what Solomon has done. God could have chosen not to enter the temple if God did not wish yeah. to enter the temple, and God entered it so mm-hmm. fully that the priests had to leave because it was like so much holiness there. I think that's yeah. super important. I also think what Solomon says is super weird. <laughs> Uh, in that, that was a, I went to PhD school for a long time to be able to say that's super yeah. weird. Yeah, it's super uh, weird. God says this, but I did this other thing. It's such an interesting construction. And then that the construction is God wants to be in thick darkness, but I've made an exalted house. Like the contrast there. And mm-hmm. when I read it, I wonder if there is some irony or some tension there. God wishes to be in thick darkness. I built the house. So what God is going to do is enter the house in thick darkness. Mm -hmm. So God, in a sense, is saying, yes, I affirm what you're trying to do here. And also, I am God. And I'm not simply going to be conformed to what Mm -hmm. your Mm -hmm. expectation Mm -hmm. of me is. Yeah. Knowing how the story then is going to end, at least in the, the story of the monarchy is going to end with the fall of the monarchy and God leaving the temple, I think, like, I can't help but read the end of that part of the story in light of here at the beginning of that part of the story to say, like, no matter how much Solomon thinks that this royal priestly apparatus is going to contain God forever, like, God can can leave when when God wishes to. God is still smoky darkness. So, yeah, and and I mean, you think... I wish we could read more of this text because in some ways I think the biblical text acknowledges some of some of the weirdness of this or yeah. some of the like just it's not it's not that there any it's not that anything bad is happening but it's yeah. that it's not a perfect fit because it can't be because we are humans and God is God. Yeah. And my eyes just like fell on on the page of my open Bible in front of me. And there's the question in verse 27, but will God really dwell on earth? So the, the, the people in this, in this text, in this time are aware that this is an imperfect system in some ways, just like having a human King at all was an imperfect system. Yeah. Like all of this from the, you know, has been sort of a negotiation of like, what does God need? What do the humans need? And what's the best sort of middle ground? So right now the middle ground looks like this really grand temple and what sounds to me like sort of a big gigantic marshmallow in the Holy of Holies that's taken up all the room. <laughs> that's my deep thought. 
<laughs> I love that. And then I love that it ended with a, mar- with a giant marshmallow. It was beautiful. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting to think about modern messages from this text that we, that we want to pull forward because some of the, the most obvious ones, I don't know, I was going to say maybe they don't quite fit because I don't know that any of our tradition, that either of our traditions believe God is located in a specific place in this way. Yeah. Or I don't even know that this text thinks that as I, as I say that, but, but there's some rich, there is some richness in this, in these sections of text that we've read. Yeah. What is rising to the top for you right now, Bobby? Yeah, no, this has been a, such an interesting conversation. Normally I feel like you and I are kind of headed in the same direction with a lot of things that we read. And this one, I feel like there's a lot of push and pull, I think in really productive ways. And in my mind, I think that push and pull is a little bit of what this text might speak to us about our own situation. Because I do think this text is deeply embedded both in a desire to honor God in the best way that we know how to honor God by, by building a glorious temple out of the best wood and using all of our resources to do it. And also that this text is playing into the political implications of that, the economic implications of that, the exploitation that happens in order to, to make that temple. That I do think Solomon has a desire to locate God in a place, even if the text itself doesn't, even if the tradition doesn't. I think that's Solomon's dream in my, in my reading of this text, is that God could be located and confined in the temple and thereby could justify Solomon's reign. So I think all of that gets mixed up together. And I think Solomon's motivations get mixed up together. And in the same way, I think our motivations get mixed up t- together in that way. And so for me, this text is a diagnostic text. Like on, on the one hand, it's, you know, let's glorify God. And I think that there's a lot one can do with that from this text. And also, let's be aware and careful when we glorify God, at what expense are we glorifying God? And what claims are we making that are in our own self-interest, maybe over and against what God actually desires? Or maybe, as in this case, like God is sort of on the same page as us to an extent but then maybe there's a divergence later about what our ultimate kind of aims are or something like that. So to me, this is just a really interesting sort of diagnostic text about like, where are we? What are we doing when we worship? And in in what ways are we genuinely worshiping God? In what ways are we serving our own political power interests? And are those things separable? Are they not separable? And how do we live with that tension? Yeah, no, I I love the description of this as sort of a diagnostic text text and and yeah, I mean I think it does it's really open <laughs> on both sides in that way in it in a way that we both love about biblical text that it's it's complicated. It's not going to tell us it is clearly one way or the other. My 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 sort of concluding thought about this text for now, I feel like is a little bit inchoate in my mind, so I hope it comes mm-hmm. out in a coherent way. But I've been I've been reading a book by Susan Beaumont, who actually is a church consultant person, but her her work is very helpful to synagogue leaders too, called How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going. Mm. And so she talks about these times that are liminal periods. Nobody likes being in a liminal period because everyone wants to have a plan. It's much easier to execute, like to figure out this is where we're going. I have the vision. We're moving towards the vision, which in some ways is, is what I see Solomon doing here. Like Solomon's like, great, we're going to build a temple. I'm going to do the temple. Like I'm focused and we're going to get it done. And on, on the other side, she describes this sort of liminal period where it's like, it really is like a cloud has descended and you can't see. Hmm. You can't see where you're going. And it's really painful for humans to stay in that space. We feel hmm. really vulnerable. Um, people tell us we're poor leaders. They tell us we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. But but her teaching is that that is actually the space that is closest to God. 
and that we should stay it, do everything we can to stay in it for as long as we can. Mm. Because once we say this is where we're going, our eyes just go to the end point and we're just marching and it's, and we're not so like attuned to attuned to everything around us, like attuned to the ways that we impact, you know, attuned to, attuned to God. Yeah. And all the subtle ways that, that God might be present. And this passage first made me think of it just because I was picturing that cloud descending on the priests and the priests couldn't do their work anymore. As soon as the cloud was there, the priests couldn't do their work. Yeah. But thinking about that cloud as both as sort of godliness and also as liminality, I don't know, feels in in some in some strange way like uh right. Mm-hmm. Feels right to me and feels really in contrast with what Solomon is doing here. He's he's a great project manager. I really love that, Amy. And it was bringing me back to the conversation we were having about the the irony or whatever, however you want to describe it, of the tent of meeting being inside this new temple structure and that mm-hmm. sort of tension between mobility or, you know, possibility and the st- structured, immovable reality. And how do you preserve both of those things at the same time? And is it, is it possible in any meaningful way to have a tabernacle that exists inside of a temple? Inside of a temple, right. What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you stay in the cloudy spaces when you've got a religious institution to run? Yeah. And what is it like to have a, have a cloudy thing inside a temple? It's, yeah. In some ways, I think it's, it's saying a similar thing to what you were saying in terms of like just the, the tension in these sort of like ways of looking at the world. But they have to come together in some way because we are, we are humans and God is God and, and it's, but it's complicated. Yeah. I think that's right. And I, I think my dream is that you could just live inside of a, of a burgeoning movement forever. (laughs) You know, everything's Mm -hmm. always like fresh and new and improvisational. And that's just not practical. Like you can't do it. At some point you have to have structures that move things forward. And yeah. this text, I think, sets, sets us right in that, in that tension. Well, next week, we will pick up still in 1 Kings, yeah. um, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 18, which is when God speaks to Elijah. Yeah. Eliyahu Hanavi. Good text. So I look forward to that conversation with you. And thanks for a great study today. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. Good to talk to you. See you next week. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest sponsors, Lynn Bowman and Serena Meyer. Join us again next week when we will read 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1-18, through 18, the story where God speaks to Elijah in that famously still small voice. Until then, keep on digging.